We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Go, episode 49 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 28, 2021, the day before the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. You got one more day. That's it. One more day to do your research, to make your phone calls, to work your sources, to put together your draft boards. Because Thursday night, it is on the first round. And actually, in some ways, it's already on. Because the Washington football team has made news on each of the first two days of the work week so far. So far, it's been a busy draft week for Washington, and the draft hasn't even started. But Monday, the news that Washington was exercising the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of Deron Payne. Washington officially announcing that on Tuesday. And then later on Tuesday, news that Washington is trading for Eric Flowers. Yes, he's coming back. As House of Payne said many years ago, just like the prodigal son, I've returned. Just like the prodigal son, Eric Flowers is returning. There are many potential ramifications of this, including maybe, possibly, a trade of Brandon Sheriff, question mark. I'll give you my thoughts on Washington's surprising trade for Flowers in a few minutes, and I'll talk about the trade, uh, where we are with a Jonathan Allen contract extension, and what to expect from Washington in the draft. Nikki Javala, Washington football team insider for the Washington Post, she'll be on with me a little bit later on. Also on this installment of the Al Goldie podcast, the Danny. Another feud for the Danny. It's been a combative last 12 months for the Danny, and it turns out that Danny versus Beth Wilkinson is very much a thing. So much for the investigation going smoothly. Dan Snyder is taking on the lawyer investigating him and his team. 
Danny fully cooperating? Eh, maybe not so much. The two are in court because, of course, they are. It wouldn't be a Washington football team week without something having to do with some controversy having nothing to do with football. I'll discuss the latest in as the Danny turns a little bit later on. Tremendous win for the Capitals on Tuesday night. one nothing over Trotsy and the New York Islanders at Capital One Arena, where we had fans. Yes, real-life fans. How dare we? Uh, but the Caps were outstanding. Final score was one nothing. The extent to which the Caps dominated that game was so much more. Caps go 3-0-0 over their three consecutive games against the Islanders, despite the Caps not having Alex Ovechkin for two of those games. I'll talk Caps on the show in just a bit, as well as talk Nationals and Orioles, both teams losing on Tuesday night. That Nats loss was something else. Nats jumped out to a 3 nothing third-inning lead against the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida. Nats finished the game with four home runs. Max Scherzer was the Nats' starting pitcher, and yet the Nats still lost. Uh, Max was not very good. The Nats haven't been very good. Just 8-12 and with a National League worst minus 28 run differential. Although the entire National League East hasn't been very good. Not a single team in the NL East has a winning record. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Got this tweet from Dan Cropley. Galdi, for me, anticipation of the upcoming draft is greater than the Super Bowl. My interest level is higher and there is more intrigue. Uh, I'm with you. I'm excited for the draft. I really am. Now, part of this is our team is involved, right? Our team was not in the Super Bowl, so it's hard to get truly amped up for something that doesn't include your team. But yeah, I'm with you. The draft has become such a big deal. The NFL has done such a great job of making the draft into a big deal. But I'm super pumped. That draft, which did a monster rating last year, I think is going to do an even bigger rating uh, this coming Thursday night. This draft, there has been so much focus and attention on it. I think that's a reflection of the interest in it. And I think we're going to see that via the television rating come Thursday night. The draft will do better than the Oscars. How about that? I'll guarantee you that right now on the Al Goldie podcast. Email from Thomas Murphy having to do with Dan Snyder. Thomas says, hey, Al, an alternative way of looking at the split between WFT, although he writes WTF, and the Nova might well be the Don. Ah, the Don, as in Don Ron, Ron Rivera. Uh, continues Thomas. He had outcomes data on several players who were cared for by Dr. West and the Innova team. It might have been Don Ron saying he had to do better for his players as the status quo medical care had poor results. I am a physician and I'm aware that complications are inevitable in any surgical practice. I am sure that Dr. West works her butt off every day for her patients. We all do. However, it may have simply been Don Ron who wanted to end the relationship. Love the show. Intro theme music, a keeper. Thank you, Thomas Murphy. Um, when this initially broke, Anova parting ways with the Washington football team, Anova having, quote, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team, end quote. I did initially bring that up of maybe Ron Rivera just wasn't that impressed with the work that Dr. West and Anova had done, or at the very least just thought that Washington could do better. But this Dwight Shark connection is just too impossible to ignore. So maybe it's both. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But the coincidence is too much of a coincidence to consider to be a coincidence, if that makes sense. The announcement from Inova that it had, quote, again, made the decision to discontinue its medical team's role as the team physicians for the Washington football team, end quote. That announcement came on Friday, April 2nd, the same day 
on which Dan Snyder buying out the disgruntled minority owners became official. One of those minority owners, of course, Dwight Shar. Dwight Shar is a major financial backer of ANOVA, which includes the ANOVA Shar Cancer Institute. So I can't sit here and just say that that has nothing to do with this. It's too big of a coincidence to ignore. But to your point, maybe it's both. It could be both. You know, it doesn't have to be uh, just one. I will get to the latest with the Danny in a bit, but we're going to talk football first, okay? Is that all right with everybody? It's draft week. I'd like to talk football for once. Can we focus on football, please, with an entity that, remember, is called the Washington football team? It's not the Washington legal team. It's not the Washington drama team. It's the Washington football team. So we shall talk football as our team is making a very interesting trade. Well, Eric Flowers is going to need a new place to live. You know who he should call? Of course you know who he should call. One of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland. And when it's time for Eric to sell his home, he 100% should call John Grandland, John G. with Real Broker, because John Grandland will sell Eric's home just like John will sell your home for free. Yes, that's right. Zero commission. John G. with Real Broker is changing the way that real estate is done. He is selling homes for free. That's right for free. Zero commission and you don't lose out on anything. Here's how this works. For those living in Northern Virginia, if you buy and sell with John, the commission paid to John when you sell is refunded back to you when you buy, making the total commission paid to John when you sell zero. So the thing that has bothered all of us for years when it comes to selling homes, how much of my money am I going to have to give to the real estate agent? How many tens of thousands of dollars is going to be leaving my pocket and going into the real estate agent's pocket? You don't worry about that with John Grandland. And if you're not selling a home in Northern Virginia, no worries. John can connect you with a top producing partner agent who can offer you the same great services with a discounted fee. Some conditions apply. Just ask Jody, who had John sell a condo in Alexandria. Quote, quick response to all my questions. Great support staff and associates to support sales process. Held three open houses in two weeks. Sold my condo above asking price in 12 days. End quote. Yes, this is what John Grandlin does. Let him do it for you. It's very simple. You can check him out online right now on your smartphone, on your tablet, on your laptop. The website is simple. It says it all. John G. Sells for free. Dot com. John G. Sells for free. Dot com. Or better yet, call John Grandland. Make sure you tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission sale of your home. The phone number, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. Four seven. John Granlin's a great guy, big sports fan, huge Washington football fan, but most importantly, he's an outstanding real estate agent. See what he can do for you. John Granlund, zero commission sale of your home. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. You never know what may be percolating with your teams. You never know what may be in the works with your teams. The good teams never let you know. And then out of the blue, drop the news on you like a piano falling out of the sky. And that's what we got on Tuesday. Raise your hand if you saw this coming. The Washington football team trading for Eric Flowers, who the team just lost in free agency last offseason. A guy who Ron Rivera chose not to pay last offseason now has been acquired by Ron via trade this offseason. And it's not just that, but Flowers, in theory, is here to replace one of the bigger bright spots from last season in Wes Schweitzer. Unless 
Flowers is here to replace Brandon Sheriff. Lots of questions to sort through. As the great Rowdy Roddy Piper said many years ago after beating up poor Frankie Smith in an installment of Piper's Pit, just when they think they got the answers, I changed the questions. They think they got the answers, I changed the questions. Yes, one of the great lines ever uttered by anyone. That was Ron Rivera on Tuesday. Just when they think they got the answers, I changed the questions. They think they got the answers, I changed the questions. Now, I'm not sure if Ron was wearing a kilt like Hot Rod used to wear, but you get the idea. There's a lot to unpack with Washington trading for Eric Flowers, so let's get to the unpacking. So the trade reportedly is as follows. Washington gets Eric Flowers and a Miami Dolphins seventh round pick in the 2021 NFL draft. What is in fact the penultimate pick of the draft, pick number 258 overall in exchange for simply the first of Washington's two seventh round picks in the 2021 draft, pick number 244 overall. So Washington sends pick number 244 to the Dolphins, gets back Flowers, and pick number 258 from the Dolphins. So to get Eric Flowers, all you're doing is swapping a couple of seventh round picks. And it's not just that. The Dolphins are picking up a decent chunk of the money owed to Flowers for the 2021 season. He was set to get paid $9 million in 2021, but the Dolphins and Flowers, per Flowers agent Drew Rosenhaus to ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter, agreed to a contract restructure by which Flowers got a $6 million signing bonus from the Dolphins. So Washington is only on the hook for $3 million in 2021. I mean, no matter what you think about Flowers, no matter what you think about what this means for others on the Washington football team, you can't not like this trade. This is about as low risk as it gets to get Flowers. All you're doing is swapping seventh round picks. And Miami picked up six of the $9 million owed to Flowers for the 2021 season. Now, he is under contract through the 2022 season. Remember, Miami on the first day of the legal tampering period last offseason, so March 2020, agreed with Flowers on this three-year $30 million contract with $19.95 million fully guaranteed. But still, like this is about as low risk as it gets when it comes to acquiring a veteran with a decent money contract. So right there, I think it's hard not to like this deal from a Washington standpoint. Now, Eric Flowers is still young. 2021 season is only going to be his age 27 season. Eric Flowers has been durable. He, this past season for the Dolphins, played in 14 of 16 regular season games. You look at Flowers over six NFL seasons, 2015 through 2020, he has played in 89 of a possible 96 regular season games. That's terrific. And know this, three of the seven missed regular season games that he's had were due to him going from the New York Giants to the Jacksonville Jaguars in 2018. So nearly half of the mere seven games that he's missed in the regular season, not even due to injury. Uh, Flowers was one of the best feel-good stories for Washington in that dreadful 2019 season. We all remember this, right? Washington was horrendous that year, 3-13. and Washington initially signed Flowers in March 2019 as an unrestricted free agent to a one-year contract, and Flowers ended up going from having been a bust as a left tackle, including, remember, struggling mightily at left tackle during Washington's 2019 offseason practices, to being one of the real bright spots in a very dark season for Washington in 2019. Flowers became a staple at left guard for Washington in 2019. Now, remember the circumstances for Washington during those 2019 offseason practices. The team needed Flowers to play a tackle 
due to so many tackles being out. So Flowers got embarrassed in a lot of ways during the 2019 offseason practices, but he ended up doing quite well at left guard in the season. Flowers in that 2019 season for Washington started all 16 regular season games, played on a team high 99.57% of the team's offensive snaps. Yes, no Washington player played more on offense for Washington in the 2019 season than Eric Flowers did. He, for pro football focus that season, allowed just two sacks the entire year. Remember the New York Giants, they took Flowers with the ninth overall pick in the 2015 draft out of Miami. He is a guy from Dayu, right? That's part of why he's represented by Drew Rosenhaus. And Flowers played a lot for the Giants, but he just wasn't that good. He led the Giants in penalties in each of his first three seasons. He, per pro football focus, allowed 169 total pressures over his first three seasons, the most for any offensive tackle during that span. Going into the 2018 season, the Giants moved Flowers from left to right tackle of having signed a free agent left tackle in Nate Solder. Flowers got benched after the Giants' 0-2 start to the 2018 season. The Giants waived Flowers on October 9, 2018. The Jacksonville Jaguars signed Flowers October 12, 2018. He played in eight games with seven starts for the Jags and then signed with Washington in that 2019 offseason. His career has not only been reborn by making the shift to left guard, you could very much argue his career has been saved by making this transition to left guard. Eric Flowers was a total flop of a top 10 pick as a left tackle. He has completely changed the narrative on his career over the last two seasons. Here's something else too about Eric Flowers. This past season with Miami, he was better at avoiding being penalized. If there was a knock on Flowers in 2019, and look, I don't want to like overstate what he was in 2019. Like, you know, he wasn't Russ Grimm or anything like that, but he was solid and nobody knew what to expect from him in making this transition to the left guard spot. But if there was a knock on him in 2019, it was that he did have some penalties. Uh, Flowers in 2019, five accepted penalties, six total penalties. Flowers in 2020 for the Dolphins committed just three penalties, all of which were accepted. So he halved his penalties, six total penalties in 2019, just three in 2020. Now, there are a few things to be mindful of when it comes to Eric Flowers. So number one would be this. Eric Flowers, when viewed through the prism of pro football focuses overall grades, hasn't been that great at left guard. And like I always say with pro football focus, it isn't gospel, but it's something to look at. Uh, Flowers in his 2019 season for Washington only had an overall grade for PFF of 64.2. That's not awful or anything, but that's also not like great. Uh, Flowers this past season for the Dolphins, an overall grade per PFF of 65.9. So he's had grades in the mid 60s over his two seasons as a left guard. And for comparison's sake, Washington's primary left guard for last season, Wes Schweitzer, he registered an overall grade per PFF of 69. So Wes Schweitzer last season, higher grade per PFF than Eric Flowers in either of the last two seasons. So yeah, it is kind of odd when you're saying to yourself like, I thought Schweitzer was pretty good last season. He was pretty good last season, but it sure seems like unless there's something else in the works here, more on that in a moment, Eric Flowers is being brought here to be reestablished as Washington's left guard. We'll see. I mean, I think there's going to be competition, but given the money that Flowers is making, whether it's coming from Washington or Miami, I don't think you make a trade like this for this guy for the sole purpose of him just, you know, languishing on your bench. Like, I think they see him as an upgrade at left guard. Otherwise, this trade isn't made. Now, there's another thing with Flowers too, and that is this. Washington, in trading for Flowers, 
does now have a very talented interior on the offensive line, but also a very expensive interior on the offensive line. And the interior of the O-line being expensive is not the end of the world. Washington does have the salary cap space to carry these guys. But generally speaking, you like to do the interior of your offensive line on the relative cheap. You pay offensive tackles. You know, you certainly pay other positions on offense, right? You pay quarterbacks. You pay receivers. More and more teams are paying tight ends. You never pay running backs. And you really do try to avoid paying interior offensive linemen. But, you know, these are sort of general rules. They're not rules that, like, you have to abide by or else you're doomed. But you are not doing any of the three interior spots on the offensive line on the cheap now. You know, Washington, remember, announced the re-signing of Chase Roulier to a four-year contract extension this past January 2nd. Three-year deal, $40.5 million, $13.67 million, fully guaranteed at signing. The other interior offensive lineman, of course, is the right guard. I said the right guard. The other one's a guard. Yes, he is a guard, Jay. Thank you. Brandon Sheriff, who is set to play this upcoming season under the terms of, yes, a second consecutive one-year non-exclusive franchise tag tender, this time to the tune of $18.036 million. The other one's a guard. Yeah, uh, no fan am I of Brandon Sheriff playing for a second straight year under the terms of a franchise tag tender. We've certainly talked about that quite a bit this offseason. But understand, with this trade being made, the Washington football team, in terms of average annual value, AAV, has the following starting interior offensive linemen ranking in the following ways per overthecap.com. Flowers tied for fifth among left guards at $10 million per year. Roulier, seventh among centers at $10.125 million per year. And Sheriff, number one among right guards at $18.036 million per year. So it's gotten mighty expensive on the interior of the offensive line. Like I said, Washington can't afford this. It's not like Washington is up against it, against the salary cap, you know, the way a team like, say, the Atlanta Falcons is. But it's worth noting this. Now, as for Sheriff, and what this might mean. Boy, I heard from a lot of you guys on Twitter on Tuesday. And you can always tweet me, at Al Galdi. It's how you can reach me of, well, did Washington just make this trade for Eric Flowers? Because Washington is about to trade away Brandon Sheriff. And I will tell you, I would love for that to be the case. And I say that not because I can't stand Brandon Sheriff, okay? I think Brandon Sheriff is a very good guard. Uh, every indication is that he's a good dude, a good teammate, good locker room citizen. But I don't like the way Washington has handled the sheriff situation. Back-to-back franchise tags. You know, you to me are on a one-way route to him leaving you via unrestricted free agency next offseason and you getting nothing or next to nothing for him. Because, yeah, maybe you can get a third-round compensatory pick, but that's only if you yourself don't sign another big-money free agent. You know, if Washington next offseason signs a big money guy and Sheriff gets a big money contract, there is no comp pick that you get back for Brandon Sheriff. And this whole thing of, well, you know, we'll just tag him as a placeholder to get a long-term deal done. Yeah, it could happen. You know, we'll see. You got till mid-July to make that happen. But we all know how this went with Kirk Cousins, and it sure seems to be going the exact same way with Brandon Sheriff. The second Washington placed a second straight franchise tag on Sheriff, Washington disincentivized Sheriff from agreeing on a long-term deal this offseason, and Washington increased the likelihood of Sheriff upping and leaving Washington as an unrestricted free agent next offseason. So I have advocated for, if you're going to tag Sheriff, as Washington obviously did, 
you need to do so either for the purpose of getting the long-term deal done and getting the deal done, okay? Not just saying, well, maybe we'll see what happens. Like, no, making sure the deal gets done or trading them, tag them and trade them. And we have seen this a decent amount in recent NFL history. Guys who have been franchise tagged and then traded in recent seasons. The edge rusher, Yannick Ngakwe, the Terrapin in 2020. Uh, edge rusher, Jadevian Clowney in 2019. Edge rusher, Frank Clark in 2019. So heck yeah, if Washington's about to do that, I applaud Washington for doing that. But I have to tell you, I don't have a lot of faith that that's what's happening here. Everything I've ever heard is that Washington wants Brandon Sheriff on the team. Ron Rivera views Brandon Sheriff as a culture guy. And so the purpose of tagging him has been to keep him, even though, again, what you're doing, ironically enough, in continually tagging Sheriff is increasing the likelihood of him leaving you. And he'll be leaving you next offseason of having made $33.066 million over just two seasons. $33 plus million over two years for, one more time, a guard. The other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay. So I would love for the trade for Eric Flowers to be a precursor to Washington trading Brandon Sheriff, but I don't have a lot of faith that that's the case. We shall see, though. We shall see. There's another layer to all this with Washington trading for Eric Flowers, and that is, what about Sadiq Charles? Where are we with Sadiq Charles? So Sadiq Charles, in his 2020 rookie season, played in one game with one start. That's it. Charles was inactive for each of Washington's first five games of the season. He then started at left guard for that 2019 loss at the New York Giants in week six, but he suffered a reported dislocated kneecap on the second offensive snap of the game, and he was done for the season. Washington put him on its reserve slash injured list on October 24th. It was something else. We waited and waited and waited to see Sadiq last season We finally see him. In fact, we see him start, but he starts at left guard, interestingly, not at a tackle spot. And he plays for two offensive snaps, and that's it. So where's he at from a health standpoint? Tough to say. Where's he at from a positional standpoint? Tough to say. Ron Rivera this offseason has been noncommittal about Charles being a tackle or a guard. Ron's basically been like, you know, we're going to kind of see where he fits in. Washington used the first of its two fourth-round picks in the 2020 draft on Sadiq Charles. It was interesting the way the pick happened, if you remember. Washington selected Charles literally minutes after announcing that the team had traded left tackle Trent Williams to the San Francisco 49ers. It was so so funny the way that worked out. This was on day three of the 2020 draft. Washington announces finally the end of the Trent saga with him being shipped to the 49ers. And then like moments later, Washington drafts Sadiq Charles. It was a very sort of poetic thing that happened. Of course, it wasn't that Sadiq was necessarily drafted to be Trent's immediate replacement, but maybe eventual replacement. You know, we'll see. Now, Sadiq Charles fell to the fourth round because of character concerns. He served two suspensions at LSU, a one-game suspension in 2018, a six-game suspension in 2019. The exact causes of the suspensions are not known, but the six-game suspension is believed to have had something to do with marijuana. And to me, you don't get suspended six games for just weed. Like, there's more to it than just weed. NFL insider Eric Edholm of Yahoo Sports February 2020 was told the following by an LSU source. The source said that Charles is, quote, a follower, not a leader, end quote, end quote, constantly stayed in trouble, end quote, during LSU's 2019 national championship season. But if not for the character concerns, Sadiq Charles may well have been a second or third round pick in 2020. 
He, in 2019, started nine games at left tackle for an LSU offensive line that was named the Joe Moore Award winner for the top offensive line in the nation. And remember, LSU 2019, that was the Joe Burrow season. And it was Sadiq Charles who was a left tackle. So Charles in 2019 protected the blind side for Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Joe Burrow, who had the greatest season that any player has ever had in college football. So there's talent with Sadiq Charles. There's athleticism with Sadiq Charles. There at least have been character concerns. Hopefully those concerns are no more, but who the heck knows. And clearly there are injury concerns. Again, the guy played in one game all of last season. But Sadiq Charles to me should be in the mix. Like he's too gifted to just dismiss And while I would never say that what you have on your roster should dictate what you do in your draft, i.e. the board should guide your draft, not your depth chart, not your perceived needs, because today's position group of strength is tomorrow's position group of need, depending on injuries and unforeseen occurrences. But you do have options along the offensive line here. It's not like the cupboard is barren when it comes to Washington along the offensive line. So if Washington, for whatever reason, doesn't draft a left tackle in this upcoming draft, I don't think that's the end of the world. As I talked about on the podcast on Monday, you do have Cornelius Lucas, who had a sneaky, really good 2020 season. You do have Sadiq Charles, who is an option at left tackle, but maybe is more so an option at guard. You know, we'll see how he's perceived by Ron Rivera, Scott Turner, and the offensive line coach, John Matsko. And now you have brought back into the fold Eric Flowers, who's not really an option to tackle. He's an option at guard. But look at what you have with the Washington football team's offensive line. It may not be oozing high-level talent, but all of a sudden now, you tell me, am I wrong in saying this? The Washington football team's offensive line has itself some depth. You know, if Wes Schweitzer is your top backup guard, you could do a lot worse than that. If you end up drafting, say, Kristen Darasaw, the Virginia Tech offensive tackle at number 19 overall, and Cornelius Lucas becomes your top backup offensive tackle, your swing tackle, you know, your new tie in Secchi, you could do a lot worse than that. If Sadiq Charles develops and becomes an all-purpose offensive lineman for you, a guy who can be deployed on the interior or on the exterior, again, you can do a lot worse than that. Uh, It's exciting to think about what the depth could be for Washington along the offensive line. It feels like they're... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There may be another move or two to come, though. So we'll see how it all shakes out. We'll see what the line looks like when the dust is settled. But to me, this is a no-brainer. I don't know how you don't like what Washington did 
to bring Eric Flowers back into the fold. And if Flowers is Washington's starting left guard for 2021, and if Brandon Sheriff is not traded and he's back as a starting right guard for 2021, and you've got Chase Roulier as your starting center coming off the best season of his career, when's the last time Washington had an interior of the offensive line that was this good? It's an interior that, yes, is expensive, but it's also an interior that's the best that Washington has had in a while. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, first round of the 2021 NFL Draft is Thursday night. There's a lot to be thinking about with the Washington football team, especially off some news of the last few days. And here to help us with that thinking is Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Nikki, it's great to talk to you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on very much. So we had the breaking news on Tuesday, Washington trading for guard Eric Flowers of the Miami Dolphins. He comes back to the team that... You could argue saved his career in 2019. Uh, he's not necessarily cheap, although Washington isn't paying all of the money. But, but the question that uh, I've gotten a lot, I'm sure you've gotten too, is, well, what might this mean for Brandon Sheriff? You know, it, does this maybe suggest that a trade of Brandon Sheriff is in the works? Uh, what say you to that? Um, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but, you know, he's he's got... $18 million fully guaranteed. You have to think what team is going to want to take that on. Now, maybe closer to the deadline, you know, when that salary becomes prorated for the rest of the season, maybe another team considers it. Um, you know, I, I kind of look at the draft implications of, all right, they're bringing in a guy who presumably will be your starting left guard because you're not going to pay him. Well, I guess Washington could be paying him only $3 million, but he, he's, said to be he's set to earn a total of nine million dollars it and you think he'd come in and start over Wes Schweitzer so what does that mean for Sadiq Charles whose position is kind of up in the air does that mean he's moving to left tackle and if so does that mean they they're not really interested in taking a left tackle high um I kind of look at those implications but yeah he also is an insurance policy for sheriff be it you know, this year or next year, because while he's on the franchise tag, there hasn't been much optimism that um, they're going to reach a long-term deal before July 15th. Yeah, and we know that Sheriff gets hurt too. So if he's going to miss, you know, two, three, four games again, then Flowers obviously could help out in that regard. You mentioned Wes Schweitzer. I mean, he did have a pretty good 2020. If you go by the pro football focus overall grades, his grade was better than Flowers' grade. Any surprise that Washington doesn't have the confidence to ride Schweitzer at left guard for a second straight year? 
Um, surprise, no, because I, I I view him, and probably the team does as well, that he's more of a backup. He's a guy that you can use at either side as guard. Um, and he is a very good backup. I think he's a good guy to have. He's he's earning backup money. Um, so maybe that's their thinking is they really want to shore up that left side of the line because at least for this season they got the right side on lock. Um, but if they could get that, that left side settled, it, it would help them. And bringing in Eric Flowers gives them a year, maybe two years, depending on, you know, how long they want to keep them. Then, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a win-win deal for Washington, honestly. You know, you can keep Schweitzer. I think the one that's probably going to be on the move is Wes Martin. You know, he started the first five games and then was benched in, in favor of Schweitzer. So it's not looking good for him right now. No, no, you definitely would, would have to think that. The other piece of news over the last few days, and you broke this item on Monday, Washington exercising the fifth-year option in the rookie contract of Deron Payne. That's not surprising, but it is, of course, significant. But... Payne's option getting picked up is a reminder of, okay, well, going into this coming season, Jonathan Allen is playing under the terms of his fifth-year option. There, of course, has been talk of, well, is Washington going to extend Allen this offseason? Are you hearing anything that uh, an Allen extension is coming, could be coming? I know there's not a lot of optimism with a sheriff long-term deal. Where are we right now with John Allen, in your opinion? I I think there were some preliminary talks, um, you know, at the end of the season or late last season, just saying, hey, you know, this is something we're both interested in and, you know, we'll we'll see where we're at after the draft and try to get something done. I think what will be interesting to see is, A, can they get it done before the season? Um, And if they don't, what does that mean for Allen? Will they try again when he becomes a free agent after the season? Or will he be, you know, annoyed that they didn't, try to re-up him now. I think the earlier you do it, ultimately you're probably going to get a better deal because every year the market's going to reset with with some guy getting more and more money. And if he views himself as an $18, $19 million defensive lineman, then that number's only going to go up. So, um, you know, they also have to consider that, you know, every year one of these first-round picks on the defensive line is going to come up. So if they extend Jonathan Allen, what does that mean for Deron Payne? And what does that mean for Montez Sweat? And then Chase Young after that. So they've got to think two, three years down the line. Yeah, there's no question about that. All right, so Washington has the number 19 overall pick in the first round. It's so funny, right? Because Washington this offseason has spent money on three quarterbacks in signing Ryan Fitzpatrick and re-signing Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. And yet we still keep talking about the team potentially trading up to draft a quarterback or just taking a quarterback, period, like, say, in the second round. What do you think is going to happen for Washington in the draft regarding quarterback, something or nothing. Yeah, I keep going back and forth with this. I was just having a conversation with Les Carpenter. Um, I don't know. Part of me feels like they they will try to move up and get a quarterback, but I would think it'd only be for for a guy like Trey Lance. So much of it could be dependent on what San Francisco does at number three if they go the Mac the Mac Jones route, um, or if they try to get. Trey Lance, might they try to make a move after that, maybe look with, you know, Detroit and Carolina to see what they're doing. Um, but then a part of me feels like, you know, they, they really don't and shouldn't mortgage their future to one quarterback, especially if they don't feel he's a guy that can start immediately, which they may not feel with Trey Lance, considering his limited play time. Um, in which case, I would think they, they'd stamp out or even try to move back, collect another pick, and they could probably still get um, one of those top three linebackers on board, top four linebackers, and, you know, Michael Parsons, David Collins, Jamin, uh, uh, Jamin Davis, and who am I blank? Uh, the, the kid from Notre Dame, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa. Um, 
I think either of those, any of those guys would, would really help that defense. You know, you know, maybe they look to a tackle. Um, but you know, I, I still think they're, they're in a position where they could do anything and nobody really knows kind of which way they're leaning and they may not know until the, the first few picks are off the board. There's been, of course, so much out there about Washington likes Trey Lance or Washington likes Justin Fields or Washington likes Davis Mills. And we know this is lying season and we know there's all kinds of misdirection that goes on. As someone who covers the team and, you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, what is the team truly thinking? How do you sift through that which is true versus that which is not true? Yeah, it's hard this time of year. It's hard more than ever this year, I feel like, because there's limited access. There's limited information. You don't have the combine. When you can see these prospects in person. You can't talk to the GMs and coaches in person. Um, you know, you didn't have your traditional senior bowl with full media. You didn't have, you know, a lot of the um, post-college season all-star games, um, the top 30 visits and all this. It's hard. A lot of it feels like pure speculation because – Teams know less about these guys. I think the medical information, the lack of medical information, um, is gonna, is gonna play a big role in this draft. Um, you know, might teams be more swayed to go with guys that they know are safer, that they've, um, seen play multiple seasons in college, that they know does not have, um, an uncertain injury history, um, Whereas maybe in past years they'd be willing to take more of a flyer on guys, um, and in guys in the late rounds especially, you know, it might be more of an imperfect science. I mean, you got your scouting staff who have done a ton of work given the circumstances, but um, there's just more uncertainty this year, so it, it's tough. No doubt, talking with Washington Football Team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post with someone like the Penn State linebacker Micah Parsons for whom there are character concerns uh, including some very disturbing hazing allegations from a former Penn State player given Washington's sexual harassment scandal you know the ongoing culture change the team having gotten burned taking bad character guys in the past like Darius guys do you think that Ron Rivera steers entirely clear of character concerned guys in this draft or not necessarily he might. It depends on, you know, how I, I would imagine they bet somebody like that extensively given their need at linebacker and, you know, he's regarded as the top linebacker this year. Um, so it, I, I would imagine his, his staff would bet him extensively to determine, you know, the context and the circumstances of everything that went on. But yeah, I also wouldn't be surprised if he sees somebody that had a past issue and is like, no, let's just, you know, save any drama for ourselves and go elsewhere, especially in a year where that position in particular is deep. They can find good talent. Um, now, if that were a position where, you know, it's, you know, if it were like a Kyle Pitts type and it's him and then everybody else way farther down, that might be a different scenario. So I, I think it kind of depends on the circumstances and certain, certainly the type of, um, the, the incident itself and, you know, the the circumstances behind it. I mean, their teams really have to do their due diligence. And again, it's it's harder this year. Yeah, no, no question. Uh, this is kind of a random question. If you don't know the answer, that's fine. But when it comes to the draft board, do you know who is actually putting that together for Washington? Like we know that Ron Rivera, in theory, has final say-so, but he's not the one putting together the board. At least we don't think so. 
We know that Kyle Smith did that for the previous four Washington drafts. Do we know with this new look front office who's actually constructing the draft board that Washington, in theory, is going to abide by for this draft? Yeah, I would imagine the two with the most input are, are Martin Mayhew and Eric Stokes. Eric Stokes was, um, you know, promoted in place of Kyle Smith and Martin Mayhew is kind of the lead football guy as GM. But, you know, they do have five guys now with assistant GM or GM experience with, you know, Chris Bullion and, and Stokes and Herney and, um, and Mayhew and I'm blanking on one other. Um, maybe it's for, but they have a lot of guys with general manager experience. And of course, Ron has a final say and that's going to come up, especially, um, you know, if they're, they're close on a candidate, it's going to be his call. So he obviously has significant input. Um, so I, I, it's probably a collection of guys, but I would imagine Mayhew and Eric Stokes have, have the most input on the board. Going back to quarterback, so used to cover the Denver Broncos, you know, we're not sure what the Broncos are going to do, but if the Broncos do draft a quarterback, that maybe makes Drew Locke available. Is Locke someone worth going after? I I know he's kind of had a a mixed first few seasons here, but there are some things to like. Do you think Locke is someone who would be intriguing to Washington or not really? Uh, Not really. Um, You know, if... To me, I would kind of put him in the same class as right now. Anyway, I put him in the same class as Heineke, Kyle Allen. Um, you know, if if Denver didn't view him as starter material, you got to think there's probably reasons. Um, you know, he he was inconsistent. To his credit, though, Denver changed their system every year. They change um, quarterbacks, coaches, and coordinators. So he's he's undergone a lot of change in his first few years in the league. But um, I, at this point, you know, barring like, you know, a major change of heart, I, I wouldn't think that a team would view him as, you know, here's a guy that we should acquire and try to develop him into our starter of the future. Excellent. Nikki Javala does a great job covering the Washington football team for the Washington Post. Uh, always enjoy talking football with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Anytime. Thanks for having me. So when it comes to the Washington football team, as you surely know by now, it's never just about football, even in an NFL draft week. God forbid we have a week with this team in which football is the only topic. You have heard me wonder, you yourself have perhaps been wondering, what's taking so long with the Beth Wilkinson investigation? Why is this thing, which started last July, still not complete? Or at least why haven't the findings come out yet? Remember the talk of Washington potentially losing its first round pick in the 2021 draft? Yeah, so much for that. The draft starts tomorrow night. But what's the holdup here? Why are we hearing nothing about the findings of this investigation into the sexual harassment scandal? Is the investigation even over? If you caught my chat with Washington football team insider Rhiannon Walker of the Athletic DC in episode 35 of the Al Galdi podcast, she suggested that perhaps Wilkinson was having some issues getting people to talk. And Rhiannon has insight into the investigation because she's been questioned in the investigation. She herself was a victim of the sexual harassment. But anyway, what is going on here? Well, now we perhaps have a better idea. And that idea has to do with Dan Snyder versus Beth Wilkinson now being a thing. Yes, we have yet another feud to add to the list of feuds for Dan Snyder. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. 
Yes, Danny. Happy Thanksgiving. But a list that already included Danny versus Dwight Shar, Danny versus Fred Smith, Danny versus Robert Rothman, Danny versus Bruce Allen, Danny versus the cheerleaders, now includes Danny versus Beth Wilkinson. We probably all should have seen this coming. This thing turning ugly. Perhaps it took a little longer than it should have, but it happened. It's happened. That's the way things go when you deal with the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, Danny, we got you on that. So this past Friday, April 23rd, there was a report from Law360.com. Law360.com said that earlier in the day, the Washington football team had told a Virginia federal judge that Beth Wilkinson was unfairly trying to expedite a hearing in order to unveil confidential details about her investigation into the team's sexual harassment scandal, citing an email from Wilkinson's lawyer that predicted the hearing would be a, quote, disaster, end quote. The team said that the usage of that word, disaster, was part of a, quote, threat, end quote, that indicated a desire to leak sealed information at the hearing. Now, remember, leaking has become a very sensitive thing when it comes to the Danny because of the alleged smear campaign funded in part by Dwight Shaw and contributed to in part, again, allegedly, by Bruce Allen. But said the Washington football team, quote, the only disaster that could come at the hearing would be the public release of yet additional privileged and confidential information of the team beyond that redacted by the magistrate judge. A prior hearing, originally open to the public, had to be precipitously closed because defendants' counsel made reference to confidential information. A recurrence of that unfortunate result would indeed qualify as a disaster for the team, end quote. So if you are confused, uh, don't feel bad about that. All of this is very confusing. It's all very multi-layered. But the hearing that Wilkinson is trying to expedite is a hearing set for June 2nd. At this hearing set for June 2nd, the two parties are to discuss redactions from a lawsuit from this guy, David P. Donovan. David P. Donovan served as the Washington football team's general counsel from 2005 to 2011. And this lawsuit from Donovan has to do with Wilkinson's investigation. Let me take you back to this past December 7th, the evening on which the Washington football team won at the 11-0 Pittsburgh Steelers, 23-17. A glorious night in Washington's 2020 season. It was during that game, as you may recall, that the Washington Post reported that Dan Snyder's legal team earlier in the day had filed an emergency motion saying that Dan planned to intervene in a legal dispute over which details surrounding a confidential settlement from 2009 could become public. The Post piece was written by Beth Reinard, Liz Clark, and Will Hobson, said that this guy, David P. Donovan, had on November 9th actually sued Beth Wilkinson. The lawsuit was filed in federal court in Virginia and was for the purpose of stopping Wilkinson from disclosing information pertaining to a 2009 confidential agreement to which Donovan was a party. So the takeaway from this was that the Danny seemingly was not cooperating with the Beth Wilkinson investigation. But what was kind of a mystery was, well, what is this 2009 confidential agreement to which Donovan was a party all about? Well, the New York Times on December 20th referenced an allegation that Dan Snyder had sexually harassed a former female team employee in 2009. 
according to the article, two investigations conducted in 2009, one by the team, another by an outside law firm hired by the team, said that they were unable to substantiate the woman's claim that the Danny had accosted her in April 2009 on a flight to Washington from Las Vegas. The team fired the woman because it said that she lied to the team's lawyers, but to avoid any potential negative publicity if the woman sued the Danny, the team paid her a financial settlement and five people, including Dan and the accuser, signed non-disclosure agreements. The Washington Post came out with its own report on this a couple of days later, December 22nd. That report said that the financial settlement was for a staggering $1.6 million and that the alleged incident had occurred on Dan's private plane while flying back from the Academy of Country Music Awards in Las Vegas. So what's going on right now between the Washington football team and Beth Wilkinson, or more specifically, the Danny and Beth, has to do, apparently, we think, we're not totally sure, but boy, do the Ducks seem to line up in a row on this one, that this has to do with this 2009 confidential agreement having to do with Dan Snyder having allegedly sexually harassed a then-female team employee. Obviously, if you're Danny and you're being investigated by Beth Wilkinson, the less that is known about this thing that supposedly happened in 2009, the better, even though it is possible that Danny's totally innocent. Like, just because you're accused of something doesn't make you guilty of that something. That is true. But that would seem to be the crux of what's going on here. The increased contentious nature of things between the team and the lawyer, between the Danny and the Bethy. And it's so funny in so many ways, because if you remember how this whole investigation started, Dan Snyder, last July 17th, put out a statement in response to the first major article by the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal. And in that statement was the following, quote, Beth Wilkinson and her firm are empowered to do a full, unbiased investigation and make any and all requisite recommendations. Upon completion of her work, we will institute new policies and procedures and strengthen our human resources infrastructure to not only avoid these issues in the future, but most importantly, create a team culture that is respectful and inclusive of all, end quote. So it was framed as, I've hired Beth Wilkinson to take a look-see at what was going on here and to clean up the mess because we are committed to cleaning up the mess. That's the way this thing was framed last July. Then we had what the Washington Post reported about a month and a half later, August 31st, that the NFL had, quote, assumed oversight of the investigation, end quote, into the sexual harassment situation with the Washington football team. And the Post piece on August 31st said that Dan Snyder and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell had agreed that it was best that attorney Beth Wilkinson report to the league instead of to the team. And that the Danny had told the NFL that he would release current and former team employees from non-disclosure agreements for the sole purpose of cooperating with the investigation. So last summer, things were very much framed as, hey, Danny's here to cooperate. Danny's here to lend a helping hand. Initially, it's Danny has hired Beth Wilkinson to look into Danny and his team. Then it was, hey, you know what? It's going to look better if the NFL is the entity to which Beth Wilkinson reports. So that transition was made. But still, it was, hey, Dan Snyder's on board with this. You know, he, he's, he's on Beth Wilkinson's side, et cetera, et cetera. And now here we are, and the two sides are in court. Because that's the way it seemingly always ends up going when it comes to the Danny. Whether it is his minority partners owning the team, whether it is Bruce Allen, whether it's Beth Wilkinson. You always end up in court with the Danny. And here we are again. So like I said earlier, it's draft week. 
And once again, a week that is supposed to be about football ends up being about something very much removed from football. And once again, a situation that was ugly enough, okay? I mean, you didn't need any of these latest occurrences to take place for the situation to get ugly. But once again, something that was ugly enough is now even uglier and back in a very familiar arena when it comes to the Danny. And that arena is court. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, exactly. Well, guess who's back to being alone in first in the NHL's East Division? Yes, the Capitals. A one nothing win over the New York Islanders at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night, when we also had the Pittsburgh Penguins losing at home to the Boston Bruins 3-1. So the Capitals are alone in first in the East at 68 points. The Penguins are second in the East at 67 points. The Islanders are third in the East at 63 points. The Bruins are fourth in the East at 62 points. Now, the big games continue for the Capitals. Back-to-back home games against the Penguins are next Thursday night at 7, Saturday night at 7. But for at least a little while here, can we enjoy, can we revel in what the Capitals just did? The Capitals just completed a stretch of going 3-0-0 over three consecutive games against their former head coach, Barry Trotz, and his Islanders. The same gang that ravaged the Caps in five games in the first round of the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs. Remember, the extent to which the Islanders dominated the Caps last postseason really can't be overstated. It's why the head coach Todd Reardon got fired. The Caps over those five games against the Islanders last postseason got outscored 17-8. The Caps over the first three games in that series got demolished in terms of five-on-five play. But the Capitals bounce back this season, have had some big wins against the Islanders and three straight wins over the Isles over these last three games. And it's not even just that. The Caps were without their best player in franchise history, Alex Ovechkin, for the final two games of this three-game stretch against the Islanders due to a lower body injury that Ovi suffered in the Caps' one nothing shootout win at the Islanders last Thursday night. The Caps were without a key defenseman, Justin Schultz, for all three games against the Islanders due to a lower body injury that he suffered in that 6-3 loss at the Boston Bruins on April 18th. The Capitals did such a good job over these three games. And, you know, you take a step back, this is not the first time the Caps have had success this season when missing a key player or players. Caps, remember, went 7-0-0 during Tom Wilson's seven-game suspension in March 2021. Peter Laviolette is doing an outstanding job. He, to me, is a very clear coach of the year candidate. I don't know that he gets the award, but he certainly should be up for the award. Capitals, as we speak on this Wednesday morning, 32-13-4 on the season. And what a treat for the fans at Capital One Arena on Tuesday night. Yes, we had fans at Capital One Arena for the first time in this Caps 2020-2021 season. Thank you, Empress Bowser. But an official attendance of 2,133 on hand to watch the Capitals author this one nothing win over the Islanders. Now, I mentioned how last postseason, in that first round loss, the Capitals got destroyed in terms of puck possession over the first three games of the series. The Capitals on Tuesday night maimed the Islanders in the puck possession battle. You cannot overstate this. The Caps, per natural stat trick on Tuesday night, had 60 five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders' 30. The Capitals doubled up the Islanders in five-on-five shot attempts on Tuesday night. How about five-on-five high-danger shot attempts? The Caps finished with 20 per natural stat trick. The Islanders finished with four. The Caps quintupled the Islanders 
in the five-on-five high-danger shot attempt battle on Tuesday night. The Capitals were the Islanders' daddies in the puck possession game. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, sir. How about this? Over the final two periods on Tuesday night, Caps for natural stat trick, 44 five-on-five shot attempts to the Islanders' 15, including 14 five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Islanders' one. Over the final 40 minutes of the game, the Caps had 14 five-on-five high-danger shot attempts. The Islanders had one. This was such a spectacular job of controlling the game, of minimizing the high-danger chances allowed, and of authoring a bunch of high-danger chances. It, 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 like, it's a one nothing win. In a lot of ways, it was like a 10 nothing win with the extent to which the Capitals dominated five-on-five play. Great jobs, too by the Caps' bottom two lines. The fourth line of Carl Hagelin, Nick Dowd, and Garnett Hathaway over 10 minutes, 13 seconds on the ice together in five-on-five play. A collective five-on-five shot attempt percentage of 73.91. 17 shot attempts for versus six shot attempts against. The Caps' third line, Connor Sheary, Lars Eller, and Michael Roffel. A collective five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick of 72.73. 16 shot attempts for six shot attempts against. Caps finished the game with 33 shots on goal to the Islanders 18. And so the Caps goaltender for the game, Vitek Vanacek, does a nice job, pitches a shutout, stops all 18 of the shots on goal that he faces. But this was not, you know, the most difficult of nights. Uh, I mean, Vitek was good. I'm not trying to say that he wasn't, but like, this is exactly the way you draw it up. Make it easy on your goaltender. You know, he shouldn't have to make all kinds of ridiculous saves to author a victory. And Vitek really did not. Now he stopped all five of the high danger shots on goal that he faced for natural stat trick. But like, I love this, how 18 shots on goal, that's all VTech had to face over the 60 minutes of play. Caps went 0 for 2 on the power play, but 3 for 3 on the penalty kill. Only goal of the game for the Caps, a Daniel Sprong even strength goal, 129 into the first period. Boy, I tell you, Sprong is making a case to continue to be in the lineup even once Alex Ovechkin is back. Sprong doing a great job of corralling a loose puck near the left corner in the Caps offensive zone, skating the puck into the bottom of the left circle, and then scoring on a wrister. And another great highlight from the night, the defenseman, Zdeno Chara, in his age 43 season, decisively winning a fight against Islanders forward Matt Martin, 420 into the second period. Repeated blows by old Zdeno. Now, he's got the reach advantage on basically anyone he ever fights ever. But uh, Zdeno, again, age 43 season, winning a fight like that in the second period. I got a kick out of that. Really can't say enough about the job that the Caps just did in part one of the biggest stretch of the season. Now, you got to keep it going. You got back-to-back games coming up at home against the Penguins. Remember, the Caps, a one-point lead on the Pens atop the East Division. So I I said this going into the stretch, three straight against the Islanders, two straight against the Penguins. This very well may decide the East Division. Um, The Islanders may now be buried when it comes to winning the East Division. I mean, we'll see. There's time to catch up, but the Caps now with a five-point lead on the Islanders, who are in third place. But like I said, just a one-point lead on Pittsburgh. But the Capitals continue to find ways to win and again in one of the big spots of the year to thrash the Islanders the way that the Caps did in the puck possession battle. Can't say enough about that. How many times have you heard me on this podcast this Capitals season talk about, well, the Caps won, but I tell you, they lost the puck possession battle, and I don't know about the process with this team, and there are some underlying things that suggest that the team isn't as good as the record says that the team is, and you didn't have that on Tuesday night, okay? On Tuesday night, you had total domination. Great job by the Caps.
Great Tuesday night for the Capitals. Another bad night, though, for the Nationals. They fall to 8-12, and a 9-5 loss to the Toronto Blue Jays in Dunedin, Florida, in Game 1 of a two-game series. Blue Jays are playing their home games in Dunedin, the spring training site uh, for Toronto, as Canada still has very strict COVID-19 protocols. But wherever this game was played, it was not pretty from a national standpoint. That's now not just 8-12 and 12 on the year, but their National League worst run differential is down to minus 28 on the season. And of all the things that jumped out to you on Tuesday night, nothing leapt out higher than Max Scherzer struggling. Uh, Max Scherzer, I don't know that you call this a blow-up start. The Nationals have had a lot in the way of the blow-up start so far this year, just starting pitchers getting wrecked. I don't know that Max, you say, got wrecked, but he certainly wasn't very good. Seven runs, five earned in five innings. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit three home runs in the game, two off Max, finished with seven RBI. It was a strange game in that regard. The two teams combined for seven home runs, including four by the Nats. That's the thing. Nats hit four homers off having hit 14 over the team's first 19 games. Scherzer was pitching. You would have said, okay, well, that's an easy breezy win. Four homers, Max on the mound. But the Nats end up losing, and they end up losing 9-5. It was a painful game in that regard. But yeah, Max had a rough outing. He gives up eight hits, including the two homers by Vlad Jr. Also gave up a double and five singles, issued two walks versus five strikeouts. And the thing that really stood out with Max was he wasn't pounding the zone like we've become accustomed to. He threw 86 pitches, 54 for strikes. Now, for a lot of guys, 54 out of 86 pitches being strikes really isn't that bad. But for Max, we're used to like three-fourths of his pitches being for strikes. Max came into the game having given up just five runs over his first four starts. He gave up four runs in just the bottom of the third on Tuesday night. One out first pitch single by Kristen Kirk, a one out single by Kevin Biggio, a one out full count walk by Bo Bichette, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. And then the biggest blow, one out grand slam by Vladimir Guerrero Jr. on a bomb to left center. Look, this may be a minor league ballpark, TD ballpark, where the Blue Jays are playing their home games, but that's a home run in just about any ballpark. That was a moonshot by Vlad Jr. And then later in the inning, Max gave up a two-out single to Randall Gritchick. Uh, Max gave up two runs, both unearned in the bottom of the fourth, leadoff double by Joe Panic, a one-out run scoring fielding error by the second baseman, Josh Harrison. More on that in a moment. And a one-out sack fly by Kevin Biggio. And then Max gave up another run in the bottom of the fifth on a leadoff full count homer by Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to left center. You know, I just mentioned the Capitals being the Islanders' daddies. Vlad Guerrero was the Nationals' daddy on Tuesday night, especially when it came to Max Scherzer. So really tough to see that. I mean, the pitching matchup was Max Scherzer versus Trent Thornton. That's a game the Nationals should win, especially, again, with the Nats hitting four homers. Like, that is, to me, as painful as anything with the game on Tuesday night. This was set up for you to win. You know, Nats jumped out to a 3 nothing lead. That's another thing about this game. And the Nats still ended up losing. Now, there were real bright spots offensively. Trey Turner had another big game. Starting shortstop, back in the leadoff spot, he was a number one batter. First of all, he played. Just the fact that he played was a victory in and of itself. Remember, he suffered a left forearm contusion on a uh, one-out hit by pitch in the top of the six of the 4 nothing loss at the New York Mets on Sunday afternoon. But Turner was out there on Tuesday night, two for four with two solo homers and another hit by pitch. Trey had a leadoff homer to left field on an 0-2 pitch and the top of the first, a one-out solo homer to left center in the Nats two-run third, despite having been down to the count at one point, one-two. And then came the hit-by-pitch, which Trey was not happy about. I don't think it was done on purpose, but it didn't look good. The guy hits two homers and then gets plunked. But a uh, leadoff hit-by-pitch in the top of the fifth uh, for Trey Turner. Yadiel Hernandez had another good game 
for the Nationals. Starting right fielder, number two batter, two for five with a homer and a single. He had a one-out opposite field solo homer to left center on a one-two pitch in the Nats' two-run third and going back-to-back with Trey Turner and Yadiel, a one-out full-count single in the Nats' two-run seventh inning. You know, he's known for his hitting. He's basically hit well at every level, and he's been thrust into, you know, a pretty prominent role, the number two spot. I mean, that was a spot that you'd seen the likes of Juan Soto have this season, and Yadiel has delivered. Like, it's a small sample, I'll grant you that, but he has been an offensive bright spot for the Nationals so far. He's got a 924 OPS, Yadiel does, in his brief time at the Major League level so far this season. 11 games, 21 official at-bats. And another guy who delivered offensively on two tonight was Ryan Zimmerman, because this was a game at an American League park, or a, a ballpark in which an American League team is hosting games anyway. Uh, you had the DH. Josh Bell was the DH. More on him in a moment. But Ryan Zimmerman was the starting first baseman. He was the number three batter, which tells you a lot about the lineup right now, that Zim is at, in that number three spot. I mean, at this point, that's not where Zim should be. But I tell you what, Zimmerman in limited opportunity has produced so far this year. One for three with two RBI and a walk on Tuesday night. And the one was a home run. One out, two run bomb in the top of the seventh. Zim also had a one out, five pitch walk in the top of the fifth inning. Like I said, he hasn't played much. I mean, he basically got buried for all of last week, Zimmerman did, by Davey Martinez. But here you have Zimmerman on the season. He's got himself three home runs over just 37 at-bats so far this year. I don't know how much longer Davey's going to keep trotting Josh Bell out there. I mean, you're going to keep doing it in this two-game series against the Blue Jays because you have the DH. But Zimmerman needs to see more time. Josh Bell is really struggling right now. Another offer on Tuesday night. 0 for 4 with two strikeouts. Now, if you look at some of the advanced data with Bell, he is hitting some balls hard. So, like, there is a part of me that's like, just, you know, at some point it's going to turn around. Like, he's not this bad, but the results of his plate appearances have been really bad. Like, you can't get around that. The guy is batting 109. He's got a 192 on base percentage. He's got a 217 slugging percentage. I mean, those numbers are awful. They're awful. And at this point, I mean, put anyone else in that cleanup spot. Kyle Schwarber, you know, Starling Castro. I mean, Castro's not hitting for power, but he did go two for four with a couple of singles on Tuesday night, a two-out single in the top of the second, a one-out single in the top of the sixth. But Bell is really in a rough spot. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Michael King emailed me, wow, Galdi, any chance this guy, as in Bell, can't play baseball anymore? A nightmare if true for the lineup. Maybe two years ago was the anomaly, and last year is what he really is, looks lost up there. He does at times. He does. There's no doubt about that. He strikes out way too much. And while he does make some hard outs, like at some point, um, th- that, that excuse only goes too far. I mean, again, 217 slugging percentage. That's bad for a batting average. And that's his slugging percentage so far on the year. You also need more out of Kyle Schwarber. At least he did have an extra base hit on Tuesday night. He had a uh, leadoff double in the top of the fourth, went one for four. Uh, with a couple of strikeouts. And I mentioned Josh Harrison earlier. So Josh Harrison did get on base a couple of times on Tuesday night, one for three with a single and a hit by pitch. The hit by pitch though. So he gets hit by a pitch in the top of the second with one out. He then gets caught trying to steal. Another instance of the Nationals running themselves into an out. And it's not like he was out by a mile or anything like that, but he was out. The Nationals, as we speak on this Wednesday, are a mere seven for 12 on attempted stolen bases so far this season. If you're not stealing bases with a success rate of like 70, 75, 80%, 
then you're doing more harm than good. The Nationals are barely above 50% so far this season. To say nothing of the other instances in which the Nationals have gotten thrown out on the base paths, trying to score, you know, from third to home, or trying to stretch a double into a triple, or a single into a double, that kind of a thing. The Nats have been really bad when it's come to running the bases. And here's something else with Harrison. He had a really bad defensive moment on Tuesday night. He was the second baseman. He has a really costly fielding error in the Blue Jays' two-run fourth inning, a one-out run scoring fielding error, as Harrison just failed to catch a fly ball in shallow right field. Now, he was drifting back, but there really wasn't anything that unusual about the play, and he just flat-out dropped the baseball. I don't know if he lost track of the ball. I'm not sure what happened, but he dropped the ball. And the Blue Jays scored a run there, then added another run later in the inning. It's not why the Nats lost the game, but it's another instance of Nationals' defensive sloppiness so far this season. Now, there was a very good defensive moment for the Nationals on Tuesday night. The center fielder, Victor Robles, a really nice leaping catch against the center field wall on a deep flyout by Rowdy Telez for the first out in the Blue Jays' one-run fifth inning. But also for Robles, was an over for him at the plate. Over for 4 with a strikeout and a killer double play. Robles grounding into a double play with the bases loaded and one out in the top of the fourth inning. So Victor Robles, as we speak on this Wednesday morning, a mere 574 OPS so far this season. Offense, I mean, I tell you, it was not a bad game on Tuesday night, but overall, there's still a lot that needs to be improved upon, and you got to get these guys going. Bell's got to get going. Schwarber's got to give you more. You know, Robles, to me, is better than what we're seeing, although at some point, you do have to wonder if maybe he's just Michael A. Taylor 2.0, a guy who can field but just can never be counted on uh, as a batter. In terms of relief pitching, three Nats relievers were utilized on Tuesday night. Still no Brad Hand, still no Daniel Hudson. It's been like forever, it feels like, since those guys appeared in the game. Kyle McGowan tossed a scoreless six in, and Kyle Finnegan gave up two runs in the bottom of the seventh on a leadoff single by Kevin Biggio, and then the third of the three homers by Vlad Guerrero Jr. Went out two-run shot for his third homer of the game. And then Paolo Espino, another successful outing for him, a perfect bottom of the eighth inning. Game two against the Blue Jays in Dunedin, Wednesday night at 7.07. Eric Fetty versus Steven Matz, who of course the Nats used to see a lot of when he was with the Mets. It is still too early to go nuts over the Nats and where things are at. If you Google up your National League East standings, every team in the division has a non-winning record. The Mets are in first place at nine and nine. The other four teams all have losing records. The NL East has been a big flop so far this season. The best division of baseball has been the National League West with the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants and the San Diego Padres. Even the Arizona Diamondbacks, the D-backs are at 500 at 11 and 11. You know, the American League West has been pretty good as well, but the National League East has been a big flop. There's no other way to put it. We'll see as time goes on if this holds up, but that's the thing. The Nats are eight and 12. They're just two games out of first place. So like, you know, the whole thing of they're done, they're buried, like, no, they're not, but they got problems. Like I said, worst run differential in the National League at minus 28. And you really hated to see the Nats lose that game on Tuesday night. You hit four homers, you got Max on the mound, and you're still not able to come through with a victory. All right, Orioles got brought back down to earth on Tuesday night. A 5-1 loss to the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards in Game 2 of a four-game series. So the O's and Yanks now tied for fourth in the American League East at 10 and 13 on the season. Another rough outing for Bruce Zimmerman. You know, Bruce Zimmerman, as much of a bright spot as he was during Orioles spring training for at least a good chunk of spring training, he has not been very bright so far in this regular season. Four runs in three and two-thirds innings on Tuesday night. Gave up nine hits, two homers, two doubles, 
and five singles in the walk versus three strikeouts. He threw just 48 of his 74 pitches for strikes. Zimmerman now over five starts this season, an ERA of 533, and he's given up six home runs in just 25 into third innings, and one of those homers on Tuesday night. What a laser that was off the bat of Aaron Judge. Top of the third, a one-out solo shot by Judge. The home run traveled at 116.2 miles per hour for StatCast. Also on Tuesday night was another outfield assist for Austin Hayes, the Orioles' left fielder. We talked about this on Tuesday's podcast. Hayes with a big outfield assist in the top of the eighth of the Orioles' 4-2 victory over the Yankees on Monday night. Well, Hayes on Tuesday night, outfield assist for the final out, and the Yankees two-run fourth as he threw out John Carlos Stanton at home for the third out. But not enough happening for the Orioles offensively on Tuesday night. Corey Kluber was the Yankees' starting pitcher, one run in six and two-thirds innings. Orioles for the game, just seven hits, three walks, one for eight with runners in scoring position. Game three, Orioles-Yankees, Camden Yards, Wednesday night at 7.05. All right, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Huge show on Thursday, the final installment of this podcast until the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. I will give you my last-minute thoughts my last-minute analysis of the Washington football team. I'll react to any news that breaks with Washington over the course of the next 24 hours or so. And we'll have a special guest on Thursday's podcast, Brian Burke of ESPN Analytics, a pioneer in football analytics. Brian Burke invented air yards. Whenever you hear about air yards, Brian Burke is the guy who started air yards years ago. Brian Burke was talking about things like going for it on fourth downs and going for two years before most others were. Brian's a local. He grew up in Baltimore, now lives in Virginia. He was in the Navy, and he's going to talk Washington football team and NFL draft with us. He has developed ESPN's Draft Day Predictor, a statistical model that relies on mock drafts, on team needs, on scouts in grades to forecast the range of outcomes for every prospect. So an attempt to quantify the mock, an attempt to put some data, some facts behind who's going to go where in an NFL draft, percent chances for each prospect being available at a given spot. So what is the percent chance that Trey Lance falls to say 12 or 13 or 14? What is the percent chance that Micah Parsons falls to 19 for Washington? That kind of a thing. We'll have a good conversation with Brian Burke on Thursday's podcast. Also on Thursday's pod, we'll have Wizards versus the Los Angeles Lakers to talk about. Oh, Bron Bron. LeBron James and LAL at Capital One Arena Wednesday night at 7.30. And we'll, of course, have the latest on the Nationals and Orioles off their games on Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on what sets up to be a big Thursday in the nation's capital. They think they got the answers. I changed the questions. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.